Well, I wanted to begin uh, this morning by just telling you a little bit of what's going to happen over the month of January. I'm going to do a little three-part mini-series called Relationships 101. And uh, today we're going to start with our relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Next week we're going to look at marriage and, uh, and our relationship with our spouse. And then the third week we're going to look at friendship. So there you go, Relationship 101. Don't worry, we're going to get back to the book of Acts, uh, but we are going to do this little mini-series first. I want to start this morning by telling you about a lady named Anne Spivak and her husband. They had good friends that uh, lived down the street, and they became really, really close. And then uh, this family got an opportunity to live and work in India, and uh, it was an opportunity they couldn't pass up, so they packed up their things and went off to India, and they were there for four or five years, and And then they came back, and uh, they, of course, wanted to visit this family. And so they stayed with Anne and her husband uh, for a week, and then they said, we've got lots of business to do in different little towns around California here. Uh, Could we leave our 11-year-old daughter with you? And they said, absolutely, we'd love to have her. And so they left their daughter, and they went off and did their stuff. And and it came to Sunday, and Anne was in the Uh, practice of regularly going to church. And so she, the little girl said, hey, that's interesting. I don't know about that. Can I come? And she said, absolutely. I'd love to have you. And so she took her to church and they went through the service and then came home. And and as they were sitting down to lunch, the husband says to the little girl, so you went to church with Anne? What did did you think? And she says, yeah, it it was good. It was really interesting. I didn't know all that stuff. She goes, one thing I'm really confused of, I don't understand why the West Coast isn't included too. And her husband, Anne, looked at her like, what is she talking about? And they're like, sorry, like, what, what do you mean? And she goes, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the whole East Coast. <laughs> the Holy Ghost is obviously what she misheard. And you know what? That almost typifies how most Christians respond to the concept of the Trinity. Confusion! The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Separate in person, but one in their essence. It's easy to say, but it's hard to wrap our finite brains around. And my aim this morning in this sermon is to get us away maybe from some of the confusion to seeing the absolute delight, the source of joy and inspiration and love that the nature, the triune nature of God gives. Instead of an academic, obscure truth, this is one that should be, in fact, impacting our Christian lives each and every day. I want to say this morning, and maybe someone's watching online today, that uh, you are not a follower of Jesus yet. You're interested in this whole Christian thing, uh, but you've tuned in today. And I'm so glad you have, because I want you to experience a little bit and see exactly who God reveals Himself to be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, it's a great tragedy of modern Christianity But God being revealed in the pages of the Bible as three in one is not seen as the source of joy and love and inspiration for our whole faith, but really as something sort of odd and at best confusing. 
Now, most Christians want to be correct in their beliefs, so we kind of give a mental nod, a, an assent to the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it simply seems way too obscure to kind of make any practical difference in how we live. Nothing actually could be further from the truth. As pastor and author and professor Michael Reeves says, to know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. Pressing into our understanding of God and who he has revealed himself to be is just doing exactly what David did in Psalm 27. It says, One thing I ask from the Lord, the only thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And when we stop and ponder the very nature of God, we're doing exactly what David did, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. Okay, we're going to dive into this exploration of the most important relationship any human can have. Knowing our loving Heavenly Father, knowing our champion, Jesus the Son who gave up his life so we could truly live, and the Holy Spirit who empowers us to actually live productive, full, and meaningful Christian lives. This fall, Candace, Fernando, our youth pastor, and myself read this amazing book, Delighting in the Trinity, by Michael Reeves. And all three of us absolutely fell in love with this book. It is so eye-opening. It's got so much joy in it. And he writes it in a really accessible way. He doesn't kind of go into uh, super academic language. Here's what Michael Reeves has to say. He says, God is love. Those three words could hardly be more bouncy, welcoming, and life-giving. They seem as warm as a crackling fire, but God as Trinity? Nope, not quite. Not quite the same effect. That just sounds cold and stodgy. He says, this is understandable because the church has been terrible at teaching this and living out the implications. But here is the amazing thing. God is love because God is a Trinity. God is love because God is a trinity. And we're going to base our exploration this morning in two passages, Matthew 3 and John 17. Matthew 3 is this amazing passage where Jesus actually is baptized. And all three persons of the trinity are there in really dynamic and surprising ways. And then in John chapter 17, that's the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus praying. And it's almost in that prayer like the veil gets pulled back and we get to see the behind-the-scenes look of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 17. John the Baptist is down at the Jordan River and he's baptizing a huge, long line of people. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes. And this is John's response. I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barning and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. What an incredible passage. You know, John's baptism really was one of repentance. People that had been living wrong, sinful lives did a 180 turnaround and committed themselves to live a God-honoring life. So it's not surprising that when Jesus shows up, John's like, what? You want to get baptized? You don't need to get baptized. Probably you should turn this around and baptize me. And Jesus has a really interesting reaction. He says, let us do this for another reason, another purpose, to fulfill all righteousness. And what he really meant was so that we could model and show total obedience to God the Father in everything. And if you think about it, Jesus, when he was just before he ascended, Matthew 28, Jesus commands all of his followers down through history to be baptized. So Jesus here is modeling for us. He's doing what he will eventually ask everyone else to do. And really that baptism of Jesus is kind of his formal launch into three and a half years of public ministry. So it's kind of a commissioning. Now the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus in the form of a dove. And a dove is one of the images or symbols that the Bible seems to use for the Holy Spirit along with oil and fire. Those are kind of the dominant three images. And it says, you know, a dove symbolizes peace and gentleness. Yet John had just said that Jesus was incredibly powerful, that he would go on to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He would gather true believers like wheat into his barn. And ultimately, tragically, in a heartbreaking way, those who refused to accept Christ right through their dying breath, that Jesus would honor that choice, allowing them to be removed from his presence, enduring the pain of that separation for eternity, like an unquenchable fire. This represents the wholeness, the completeness of Jesus. You have the gentle Savior who welcomes everyone and heals our deepest wounds, And at the very same time, he is the rock-solid, powerful Lord of glory who is the dividing line of history. Bible scholar R.V.G. Tasker translates the words that God the Father says. It says, when the heavens open up and the voice came, he says, this is the most accurate way to translate that. This is my Son in whom my pleasure rests. Now that's amazing. If you think about most earthly fathers, Uh, We are proud of our kids when they do great stuff. When we see our kids be compassionate or brave or stand up for some other kid and defend them 
or they're loving. We're like, wow, well done, son or daughter. Maybe we see them accomplish something in sports or art or, or drama or any of the other things that kids can get into. And we go, wow, well done. But not every first earthly father is proud of his kids all the time. Because when they're selfish, mean, and they're little jerks, you tend not to be as proud of them. But then you think about the words of God the Father here to his son Jesus. That is, his pleasure actually rests in his son. You see, this is the ultimate perfect father-son relationship in the universe. They are so unified that the pleasure of the father never leaves the son. It, it actually takes up permanent residence in Jesus the Son. All three persons of the Trinity seen in this passage acting in perfect unity and oneness. Back in 1152, a young Scottish guy by the name of Richard, he went over the ocean and he landed at a monastery just outside the walls of Paris in France. And there he dedicated himself to contemplating God. And he was soon known as one of the most influential authors of his day. And he spent a lot of time thinking about who God is. And Richard argued that if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving. Since for all eternity, before creation even happened, he would have had nobody to love. Then he argued, he said, if God were two persons, he went on, God might be loving but kind of in an excluding, ungenerous kind of way. He says, after all, when two persons fall in love, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else. And a God like that would be far from good news. But when the love between two persons is happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. And Richard said, just so, that is the way it is with God. Being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy through the Spirit. Therefore, God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include. You know, I remember seeing the account of a young youth pastor down at some church in the, in the estates and he had given up his Christian faith and he was convert, converting to Islam. He grew one of those cool little fringe beards. He had the little cap that the imams wear. I guarantee that young dude did not have a firm grasp of his own Christian faith. Because once we fully understand the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, every other religious idea about God being single, and solitary just doesn't measure up. Again, Michael Reeves in that brilliant book, Delighting in the Trinity, says it this way. He kind of imagines a personal classified ad. He says, single God, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with good sense of humor. He says, would you in your divine wisdom and power ever want to create a universe? And if so, Why? Because you feel lonely and you want some friends? Because you like being pampered and want some servants? 
And Michael Reeves makes a fascinating observation about the religion of Islam. He says, traditionally, Allah is said to have 99 names, titles which describe himself. One of them is the loving. And then Michael asks this question. He says, but how could Allah be loving from all eternity? Before he created, there was nothing else in existence The only option is that Allah eternally loves his creation. But that would mean that Allah is dependent on there being a universe, being a world, being people to love. And one of the cardinal beliefs of Islam is that Allah is dependent upon nothing. And that's the problem. When God is defined down as just one single solitary being, How can that kind of God be eternally and essentially loving when loving always involves another? No such problem exists in the Christian faith because from all eternity past, before there was light, before there was time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a perfect relationship, mutual, self-giving love. You know, it's no wonder that the Trinity shows up in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's the Holy Spirit making a verse, an appearance in verse 2. And then verse 26. Then God said, let us... Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Amazing. God created the world not out of need, not because he was lonely or wanting slaves to boss around, but because of the overflow of the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big, mind-blowing truth. I want you to try and let that sink in this morning. But it actually has a billion practical applications. Think for a second about the act of praying. When you pray, you are actually responding to the love of God overflowing from the Trinity. Some people think when they pray, they're the initiator. But we're actually the responders. That's a really amazing thought. When we serve in ministry, here at our church or as our church goes out in the community, as we serve, it isn't because God couldn't make anything happen without us. He's not so desperate that he's like, oh man, when will those people do something? Neither does God ask us to serve because he likes to lord it over us as his slaves. God asks us to be involved Because in participating, you and I are changed. It's how he begins to change us into the people he wants us to be. When you love your spouse, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, or even strangers, you aren't actually the source of all that love and goodwill. What you really are as a Christian believer is the pipeline. And you filter that love from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, and you're able to give it to others. That's a beautiful truth because it keeps us from burning out. 
If it's all up to us, we're going to run out. All right, on to our second passage from John chapter 17. The longest prayer Jesus ever prayed that we have recorded. All right, John 17, beginning in verse 20. This is what Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be as one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Wow, what a prayer. And the first thing we notice in verse 20 is that Jesus is actually thinking down through history Thousands of years imagining all those who would eventually come to return in repentance and faith and become his followers. I love the way the Living Bible translates verse 20. It says, I'm not praying for those alone, but also for the future believers. That means you and I sitting here as Canadian Christians half a world away, 21 centuries later, Jesus was holding us in his heart and mind, praying to God the Father. Secondly, we see Jesus boldly prays for unity amongst Christians. And what it is based on is the relationship he has with his Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. That is the holiest, most pure, most perfect relationship in all of the universe. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different, but they are of the same essence and in such total, complete agreement in everything that they are said to be in each other. Theologians have come up with a fancy word for that. They call it perichoresis, the dance of the Trinity. Amazing. This is the absolutely astounding fact that then, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this amazing relationship, we are actually invited into it. Oh, that's an astounding thought. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. You and I, sinful schmucks that we are, are forgiven and cleansed in Christ to such a degree that we aren't just kind of allowed to peek into the throne room of God, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actually extend their hands and invite us into the dance. I don't know about you, but that blows me away. I think it's amazing. You know, if you've ever heard someone try to summarize the whole Christian faith as, yeah, Jesus came, died for my sins, uh, rose to heaven, and now I get to spend eternity with him. That's such an inadequate description of the Christian faith. That is not the finish line. That is the start line of the Christian faith. There is so much more. There's this relationship we've been called into. Fourth and 
insight I have is I want us to grab the eye-popping verse in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Now, Jesus is partly here speaking of his ascension to heaven, his promise to go there, build a mansion, get it ready for us. But the biggest prize of being in the presence of Jesus, not the accommodations we get to hang out in, it's actually seeing the uninhibited glory of Jesus face-to-face, nothing standing in the way. I think that just might be the ultimate experience in the universe. You know, we're given a glimpse of it in the Gospels. Peter, James, and John, Jesus' kind of three closest disciples, Jesus invited them up on a mountain, and the veil was pulled back, and they got to see a glimpse of Jesus and all of His power and glory. It absolutely rocked their world. Can you imagine having that 24-7? Always being able to see that. Finally, it says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me before, given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Our friend Michael Reeves helped us see the significance. He says, before creation... Before all things, the Father was loving and begetting His Son. For eternity, that's what the Father was doing. He did not become the Father at some point. His very identity is the one who begets the Son. That is who He is. That is not as if the Father and the Son bumped into each other at some point, found out surprisingly how well they got along, and said, hey, this works, we should hang out. No, that's not it. He says a fountain is not a fountain if it does not pour forth water. Just so the Father would not be the Father without His Son, whom He loves, through the Spirit. And the Son would not be the Son without the Father. And so we see that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while distinct, are absolutely inseparable from each other. They're not confused. They're undividable. They are who they are together. They always are together, and thus they always work together. Well, what does that mean for you and I? It should banish any last doubt that's clinging to us That God is just angry and mad and waiting for us to mess up so He can whack us with a big stick and get us back into line. That is so not who God is in His nature. That should do away with any ridiculous ideas that the love of God is conditional on our behavior. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love us while we are serving and giving and loving But it's completely wrong to think that it stops the second we are greedy, selfish, or cruel to anyone else. We need to let those ideas die. Because the real truth is that the love of God from all eternity, from Father, Son, to Holy Spirit, has been an overflowing fountain between them and then to the rest of creation and all of us. Amazing. All right, well, we've come to our final point and I'm calling it Practical Implications. One of the most interesting observations about the Trinity comes from a British theologian. His name is Dr. Jeffrey King. And he noticed that God identifies himself with three different birds in the Bible. 
interesting. He says, God the Father is always kind of pictured metaphorically like an eagle. Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, and hovers over its young and spreads its wings that spreads its wings to watch them and carries them on its pinions finally Isaiah 40 verse 31 but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles they will run and not grow weary they will walk and not be faint so it seems like God the Father is very much identified with an eagle And then God the Son, Jesus, is always kind of given the metaphor of a mother hen with his chicks. It says in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And God the Holy Spirit, as we've already said, is always pictured as a dove. Matthew 3.16 again. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment heaven was open, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And so Dr. Jeffrey King said, you know, those three birds are amazing because here's the practical application. He says, God the Father, as an eagle, has the ability to bear you up, to lift you up like a powerful eagle. God the Son has the ability to shelter your soul. God the Holy Spirit has the ability to impart power and purity into your life. Isn't that beautiful? You know, getting to know God better does actually make for far more profound and practical changes in our life. Knowing the love of God, knowing that it's this overflow from the Trinity to us, makes us loving over time. Seeing the desirability of God alters our preferences, our inclinations, the things that drive our behavior, begin to want God more than other things. You know, understanding God as Trinity isn't just an intellectual game. In fact, we'll see that the triune nature of God affects everything. He says it can change everything from how you listen to music to how you pray makes for happier marriages, warmer dealings with others, better church life. It gives Christians an amazing sense of assurance. It shapes holiness and transforms the very way we look at the world around us. No exaggeration. Truly contemplating God's nature begins to turn our lives around. Well, Christian author Max Licato compares the role of the Trinity in our lives to a guy who wants to learn to dance. This guy is a pretty by-the-book, rational, intelligent sort of guy. So he figures, how do I learn to dance? I'm going to get a book from the library. So he goes and gets a how-to-dance book. And he reads this thing, and he tries to follow it exactly. When it says sway, he sways. When it says lean, he leans. He even cuts out little paper footprints, and he's practicing, he's doing all this. Finally, he thinks he's got it down pat, so he calls his wife into the room. He's like, honey, honey, I think I've got it. Watch this. And he's kind of holding the book in hand, 
and he tries to do this dance. And it's very mechanical. Right foot, left foot, spin. Finally, he's exhausted. He collapses on the couch and he, he says, well, what did you think? I executed it perfectly. And she replies, yeah, you executed it all right. You killed it. And the guy's kind of confused. He says, but, but I followed all the rules. I, I laid out the pattern. I did everything the book said. But his wife says, you forgot the most important part. Where was the music? With that, she grabs her phone, cues up her favorite song. She says, let's try it again. Put the book down. Just come hold my hand. And before he knew it, the music starts. This guy is dancing without a book. And Max Licato says, too often Christians are prone to be like the guy tied to the book. We master the doctrine of the Trinity. We, we maybe memorize a verse where we can see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we debate which analogy helps us understand the Trinity. But then we stiffly step onto the dance floor of life with no music in our hearts. Dancing with no music is tough stuff. You know, I didn't preach this sermon this morning so you could learn more doctrine, more correct ideas about God. I preached this sermon this morning so you could jump into the dance. The perichoresis of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one amazing, overflowing relationship. And I want to challenge you this week as you pray, as you sing in the shower, singing worship songs, as you, as you turn up that worship playlist in your vehicle as you drive, as you read your Bible, let that divine love spill all over you. Just get out onto the dance floor. Take the hand of God the Father. Take the hand of Jesus the Son. Take the hand of the Holy Spirit and join the dance. Amen? Carmen, please come and pray for us.